architects out there. If you believe design can change the world, then you've found your humans here on this show, Architecting. My name is Angela Mazzi, and I'm an architect and career coach who's figured out how to live my passion while claiming a successful architecture career and lifestyle. This show is about the architect as a person and will help you bypass the status quo traps in our profession while teaching you how to make an impact in your career. We need to stand in our power as architects and use our skills to make great places. If you're with me, let's get architecting. What up, architecting community? I wanted to let you know that there is not just one way to architect, but actually eight different areas of strengths, interests, and aptitudes that you need to be aligned with in order to have your best career. Want to learn more? Head on over to architectingpodcast.com and download my free resource right on the front page called The Archetyper. Get it now and let me know the magic that happens. We haven't been trained for ethical issues. And unfortunately, when we face them, we just haven't had the training to know how to resolve these issues, what to do in that situation. And so we need to do more preparation work to make sure when we face these challenges, we have the tools to be successful. Right. Welcome, everyone. I am really excited today. I have as my guest, Mark Hirschberg, author of The Career Toolkit, instructor at MIT and a startup executive. So welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, I always love having people on who challenge the status quo, and I'm really intrigued by the idea that your book is less of one of those read it, assimilate knowledge and go on kind of approaches and really more of a set of guidelines to continuously work with and reference. So what led you to create this and make it more of a tool than a book? I'll give you my origin story, which is when I was a young software developer right out of MIT. I was quite happy doing my job, but I knew I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. I thought about what would it take for me to qualify? I realized it wasn't just about being a good software developer. In fact, my ability to write code has gotten far worse because I don't spend time doing it. What is it a CTO does? Well, he or she needs to hire people, lead people, build effective teams, communicate down, sideways, upward. You need to think about strategy, negotiation, all these skills. And I had never been taught any of them in school. I learned to develop them in myself. And then I realized these are important skills are not just for executives. Everyone should have these skills. So when I would interview other people, I would ask them questions on these topics. And while they could answer questions in their domain, marketing or software, when I asked about what makes a good leader, I'd get a blank stare because they never learned it either. Mm. I had to train up my team and there weren't great podcasts and other resources like this back then. So I created my own training program. And around the same time, MIT had gotten feedback from corporations saying, look, your students are very smart, but we want to see people who are leaders, who are good negotiators, strong networks, good communicators. We can't find this. That's not just MIT students. This is universities across America have gotten this feedback. So MIT wanted to develop a program to address this. And when I heard about it, I reached out. I said, I hear you're working on this. I've been working on it for a bit. Happy to share my notes. So they invited me to come in and help create the program. And then they invited me to help teach it, which I've been doing for 20 years. But as I said, it's not just MIT students who need this. 
And so I encouraged for years MIT to put the content online. MIT's always been great about that. They didn't have the time or resources to do it. So I turned it into this book to help the rest of America who needs help with their careers. And so that's how we came about with the book. As you suggested in your opening, it's not just here's some information because the way we have learned in the past is just knowledge transfer. I learned my physics equations. I memorized it. Architects learn, here's how to make a building that doesn't fall down. Here's how to think about the number of bathrooms you need, given the number of people using the facility, right? You have simple rules, memorize the rules, apply it. Because college is about teaching you knowledge, learn the knowledge, apply the knowledge. But life is not about knowledge. In college, it was answering the question. In business, it is knowing what question to ask. And so we need to step to that meta level. We need to think about how to approach our problem solving, how to create the team, not just executing while we're in the team. And those are things we're not taught. And that's what we need to address to get to the next stage of our careers. I love that, this idea that it's about more than just, I'm always harping on this, the compulsories and getting to the freestyle because that's where the magic happens. That's the realm of innovation. What would you say is the single biggest workplace skill that people don't have that they really should work to cultivate? I wouldn't say there's any one skill and for each of us it's different, but it's understanding the value of these skills. So let's take an analogy. We're gonna do a little math, but you have mainly architects. I know you can all handle this math. So imagine you have a rectangle that's four by 10 and you need to increase one of the sides by two units and you wanna maximize the area. Which side do you increase, the 10 side or the four side? Now I'm sure all of your audience thought about it and said, well, increase the short side, right? Go from four to six, that gives us 60. Okay, so what does this have to do with anything about our careers? What happens when you increase that short side? You're taking those two units that you're putting on the short side and you're amplifying it by the 10 units on the long side. We have this long side that we can amplify. All of us have short sides and long side. We all have some skills. I'm pretty good at technology. That's the field I've been in. Your listeners, great at architecting, far better than I am or most other people. Those are our long sides. But if we have great long sides, but really short, short sides, if we are a terrible communicator, we might have brilliant ideas, but no one's going to want to listen to us. We might be great at coming up with designs, but if we're not going to lead, then no one's going to want to pay attention to our designs, or we're never going to get that promotion. We have to work on our short side. And it's not about being the best leader in the world, the best communicator. For many of us, it's just getting a little bit better But that small incremental improvement in the short side is amplifying what that long side is. So we all focus on our long side. I have to keep up with the latest technologies. I'm sure your listeners keep up with trends in architecture, with new rules and regulations and techniques, and continue to do that. But invest some time into those short sides because you're going to get a much better ROI. I love that analogy. It makes so much sense when you think about it because you're trying to be less lopsided in your development, more well-rounded. Your book has just an incredible breadth of issues. And I really encourage everyone to get the book and to download the app because really there's not a workplace scenario you can run into that you can't find something in this book that can help you with. But I wanted to specifically touch on a couple of subjects that most people don't talk about too often. The first one of those is negotiation. In design professions especially, 
because our work is more qualitative than quantitative, it can be hard to really fight for the value you bring. And there's even a certain shame associated with caring too much about compensation you're going to get over the, I'll call it nobility of doing the work or about asking for a higher salary. Like, am I really worth that much? Because I don't necessarily have all these boxes that I can check. It's a lot of softer skills and intangible kind of quality. How do we, one, get over that fear of negotiating? And then why is negotiating so important? I'll add in another factor, particularly with creatives, which is that we don't want to wind up with the camel, right? That design by committee. We know when different people come with different designs, if we start to compromise and throw it all together, it's usually subpar than if we just picked any one. So it's particularly not natural to designers, whereas we see it in other fields, perhaps a little more often. Now let's talk about why this is important. And then we can talk about what are some techniques you can use. Imagine, for example, you're 25 years old, you have a job offer for $60,000, but instead of taking it, you go and negotiate just a little bit. You go in and you say, look, I really like this job, but I would like to get $61,000. You use some of the techniques and you get that $61,000. Okay, $1,000 more, we can imagine that. If you do nothing else for the next 40 years of your career, you've earned $1,000 more 40 times. You've just earned $40,000 from one single five-minute negotiation. Have you ever gotten $40,000 in five minutes before? Now, of course, you're not going to stick in that job for just 40 years. You are going to have promotions. You're going to have raises. You're going to have other jobs. If you learn to negotiate, you're going to earn tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars more over your career. This is not about being a world-class negotiator. It's about taking that short side you have and making it slightly larger. That's it. Now we've just focused solely on your salary and already you can be earning significantly more by just reading a book, taking a class, just getting a little bit better. But we negotiate not just about salary. We negotiate all the time with our customers, with our suppliers, with our partners. We negotiate with our coworkers all the time. It's not always about money or quantitative factors. We negotiate doing trade-offs and timing and projects. And if you learn to be a better negotiator, you're going to have much more effective outcomes. Not that, oh, I just got X units more, but we came up with a better solution. Because when you learn to negotiate, one of the things you learn, it's not just about dividing the pie. How do I just get the biggest piece I can, well, smaller piece for you? You learn how to creatively increase the pie. And here's where people with creative backgrounds are really good because you come up with these interesting solutions that increase the size of the pie. So then even when you do grab a bigger slice, the other person says, well, you might get more, but my slice is so much bigger. I am so much happier with this. Learning to negotiate will benefit you directly in your compensation but also create for better outcomes throughout your professional activities. And you talk a lot about zero-sum and non-zero-sum negotiations, which I think gets at that idea of transcending the sense of lack of if I get something, you lose something. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Zero-sum is how most people first think of negotiation. Suppose you're selling a used car and I'm buying you want to get as much as you can. I want to get as little as I can. And of course, every extra dollar you talk me into is one less dollar I have, one more for you. Together, it sums to zero. There's a fixed amount of money between the two of us, no matter the outcome. 
when we get to non-zero sum, this is where we can come up with these creative additive solution. So imagine, for example, that you're taking a job and there's a, a long commute and you're spending a lot on gas and you try to get more money. And I say, listen, this is it. This is a cap. I can't go any higher. But they say, you know what? There might be other things. And you come up with, how about I work from home two days a week? Certainly things we can imagine in a post-COVID world. Well, now what happens? You're saving gas two days a week, right? If that adds up, this could be hundreds of dollars, potentially thousands of dollars a year. That's effectively money in your pocket. It didn't cost them anything. There's also just value of you might say, I like working from home. And if it doesn't cost them anything, you've got extra value. It's not dollar value that's measurable, but it's happiness and outcome. So this is where we get to non-zero sum. We come up with options that might have more value to one side than the cost to the other. And that's how advanced negotiators create more value, how they enlarge the pie so everyone walks away better. When you think about negotiating, it can feel a little bit awkward sometimes to make an ask. So what do you recommend to help people feel a little bit more comfortable with what they're asking for? Yeah, there's two things at play here. First is many of us, we're just afraid of rejection. We're afraid if I put myself out there, the person's going to say no. My experience has been, unfortunately, men have a slightly better design for this because men have been trained in heteronormative culture. We go and ask. We're trained to ask women and get rejected. And men are used to asking and being told no and being okay with it. Women in particular spend less time taking that type of risk and so get less of that social training. Uh, there's oh, wow. also dynamics about how men and women interact within their own groups. Men are a lot more competitive with each other. Women are much more collaborative. And so all this social training tends to make it a little easier. Now, but one thing to think about is how often you are taking risks, not just in negotiating, but asking, pushing, putting yourself out for rejection, getting comfortable with that. The second part of it is the belief that we are adversarial, right? Okay, well, I want to get more money out of you. The right approach that every good negotiator uses is we are negotiating partners. I am not negotiating against you. I am negotiating with you. And together, we will create a solution we both want. Not I will get what I want and screw you. It is we together. And when you shift that mentality, it's less about, well, I'm trying to take for me. I'm trying to find a solution that works for both of us. That solution just involves me getting more of whatever you're asking. What a wonderful way to frame that. And I could imagine this would be particularly good when you're trying to negotiate that promotion, which is a lot more risky than getting the job and trying to get the salary you want in the first place. It's not just about, well, I want the salary. I want the promotion. The company wants a good person in this role. And if you are that person, this is helping the company with your customers. When you're negotiating against them on price or budget, again, they might want to pay as little as possible, get done as fast as possible. But probably even more important is getting it done right, getting a good design, getting someone they can trust who's reliable, and that is you. And so that's a component. You might not be explicitly talking about I am reliable and trustworthy and will do a great design, but that's part of what you're bringing to the table and part of the value the customer is getting, even if you are not explicitly saying that. So you are delivering value. This is in the customer's best interest, even if they might have to pay a little more, or take longer than they'd like. Always think in that we mentality. How am I helping the other person, the other party as well, so that we both benefit 
from this negotiated deal. I did want to ask a little bit about negotiations that may involve multiple parties. So for example, you put in a proposal and so do three or four of your competitors. Often there is the whole red ocean, let's race to the bottom and undercut fees just to win the job. How do you negotiate in an environment like that where you want to demonstrate that there's value over cost? This is where if you're looking at just that one metric, just that bottom line number, well, it's easy for the person putting out the bids to do that comparison. But let's take this used car example. There's the used Ferrari and there's a used Toyota. Which one do you think is cheaper? Okay, so yeah, the Toyota is less. And if all I need is a set of wheels to drive me to the supermarket, probably a Toyota is a better option. But the Ferrari might be more fun. It might be more fun when I go on road trips, when I go out on the highway. It just might give me a better feeling about myself. It's not something we can measure. It's not something we can quantitatively say, this is X units better, but there is some value there. And so when you are bidding against other people, what you want to do is not just say, well, here's the one metric. It's just money or money and time. You also want to express other value. Particularly in architecture, we all know the value of walking into a beautiful, well-designed building. Think about whether it's your home or whether it's your company. When employees show up, do they say, wow, I am inspired to work here. When you think about beautiful designs like SC Johnson Wax, right? Or you think about homes like Falling Water and they're just magical versus here's a cookie cutter building with four walls and a roof. You just show up and go, great, corporate America. I'm going to send my little box. That's not going to inspire employees. What's that worth? Maybe it's not worth double what the other bid is, but it's worth something. There's some value to that. There's also value to you work well with them. We all like people we can work well with versus the pain in the ass customer, the pain in the ass supplier. And if you can show you are a good partner to work with, that's valuable too. How much? It's hard to linearly measure it, but if you can start convincing the customer this is valuable, it's worth paying more for. And they're not just going to look just at money. So think about the multiple components of the value you offer and emphasize those and not just the bottom line. That makes a lot of sense. We talk a lot about value over first cost once you're working on the project, but this is a way to kind of bring that in even before you win the job. You talk a little bit about making trades in a negotiation. And I know you touched on this a little bit with the idea that a job negotiation may be more than just salary. There may be other benefits. What are some other kinds of trades that can be beneficial? This is another common misconception with beginning negotiators is they think when we have six different components we're negotiating, well, let's start with the first and reach an agreement on that. And then we'll move to the second and reach an agreement and so on. But in fact, you want to negotiate multiple things at once. It's called log rolling. And the reason you can do this is because you can trade off in different areas. If we have two issues, A and B, A is really important to me, B is really important to you. I can convince you to give me more of A and in exchange, I'm going to offer you more of B, right? And we both get something more valuable particularly if it doesn't cost you much for A or doesn't cost me much to give you B. But again, we each derive value from that. When you have multiple issues, you want to group them. You might not be able to tackle all six at once, but think about how you can combine them and come together and do trade-offs and do packages. Well, I can give you this much of A 
with that much of B, or I can give you a different combination of the two. You can try a couple and see how you respond to it. Don't be afraid if it feels like, okay, we, we decided on the AB package and now we're moving on to C and D and it's, we're, we're finding an impasse. Well, maybe we can go and do a little more trade-off on A and B. Let's open that issue back up. It might feel like you're backtracking. Oh, we already had this resolved. Now you want to open it up again, but that's okay because when we get these multi-issues, it allows for these much richer types of optionality as we come together for solutions. I learned a new word, log rolling. <laughs> That's such a great way to think about it because I do think most people are trained to negotiate on a single point instead of a group of issues. That is a really great takeaway for this audience to have on negotiating and feeling comfortable saying, I do have something to offer. Really being in touch with your personal value helps in those cases as well. Very much so. You need to know before you enter negotiation, what is it you want? What are the values, right? How much is A worth versus B? Where can you go? What's your bottom line on these issues? So do your research and planning before you go in. The analogy I like to use is in sports. When you go watch a football team play, you watch them play for a couple hours. But in fact, they're not just working a few hours a week. What's happening the rest of the week? They're in training. They're exercising. They're running drills. They're playing skirmishes. They're watching the other team. They're coming up with a strategy. They're doing all this work long before they set foot on the field. And it's that work that maximizes their outcome when they play the game. As negotiators, too many people just say, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go negotiate my job or with this customer or the partnership, and they just walk in. But like athletes, we want to do that preparation work. Most of the work in negotiations for good negotiators happens off the field. It's in that preparation. It's in the post-game analysis. It's during halftime, during the break between a couple of days of negotiations, you're saying, let's see how we're doing, what's working, how is the other side responding, and what can we do to deliver more value to both parties? So don't just think it's what's happening at the table, plan and prepare. An issue that in my mind is a little bit tied to negotiations, although it's around a different topic, is that of ethics. And I know you have a section in your book that deals with this. And in today's world, it seems to be more and more critical that we understand. Could you start by saying what kinds of ethics issues really need to be considered in the workplace? There is a range of ethical issues that we will be facing. This can range from behaviors of a coworker. Sexual harassment, unfortunately, is far too common but even issues of people cutting corners or bending rules. I've seen very often salespeople say, you know what, we're not supposed to expense this, but we'll just say there is a client with us and boom, we're expensing lunch. Right? Or executives saying, ah, yeah, you know, I'm above my expense limit, but I'm an executive. I can just tell them to approve it. Little things like that. We see issues with how we impact larger society, whether it's our local community or society as a whole. We see issues of companies that are altering legislation because that helps them in the short term, or it helps them be more profitable or avoid costs, but it has a cost to society. One of my favorite examples of a complex issue with secondary effects is that of the field sonogram. Using a sonogram, you can potentially determine the sex of the baby. Unfortunately, certain communities have gender preferences. They much prefer men over women. 
So this sonogram that was designed to help save lives and improve the health of the baby and the mother can now be used for selective abortion. That is not how the designers intended it, but it's how someone said we can use this tool. Social media. Social media is great. It's connecting people, people who otherwise couldn't engage or see each other. It's helping dissidents to organize, to come together, to have their voices heard. And it's helping terrorists to come together and plan out attacks. And the difference between one or the other is probably your perspective on that particular political situation. So we have to recognize our tools can all have uses far beyond how we're thinking. You can't think about every possible use case. You can't plan for every scenario. But we do need to think ahead and plan. As architects, one of the things that you design in your buildings are safety systems. There's a reason we have two sets of stairwells. We have fire doors and firewalls and fire suppressant systems. And those of us in these buildings, what do we do? We have all practiced fire drill. All know what to do in a fire. And I've been in buildings where the alarm has gone off. No one panics. No one shoves the other person or jumps into the elevator. We've been trained. But we haven't been trained for ethical issues. And unfortunately, when we face them, we just haven't had the training to know how to resolve these issues, what to do in that situation. And so we need to do more preparation work to make sure when we face these challenges, we have the tools to be successful. I even wonder too, how many things we don't think of that once you can claim, you know, something is either harmful or beneficial. Now, how compelled are you to take action? So right now in the building industry, there's a lot of great research coming from fields of neurology, psychology, and sociology about how powerfully our environments affect our well-being. While there's a lot of discussion about this, there is not a lot of codes around this yet. So it begins to introduce the ethics of if you know having a window in a classroom is going to improve test scores, decrease absenteeism, and provide a whole list of other benefits, your client doesn't want to pay for the window. How do you really handle that? Which is why I think negotiation is so tied to ethics. And the reverse side, when we design casinos, we all know casinos are designed to be like mazes, to be hard to get out of, to not show a sense of time. Now, for most of us, okay, no problem. I go in and had a fun evening. For those who might have a harder time limiting their gambling, the design of the building is encouraging their problem area. What responsibility do we have as architects to address this? to not hammer people where they are weak. Now that's perhaps an extreme example, but to your point, there are more subtle examples along the spectrum. That's a question of what we need to think about and worry about. Even in falling water, right? There is a famous case. This is my, my limit architecture knowledge. That I believe the design was not going to work in the long term. And the builder actually had to step in and say, I'm going to reinforce this. I'm going to use double the enforcement. So if you believe there is a problem, even if the regulations might say this is sufficient, well, the rules, there's no problem here. But if something in you says, I think we have to do better, what is your obligation, even if that impacts costs, right? Even if that impacts if you get that contract, because your costs will be higher. So there are a lot of questions that come into play. What would you suggest that people can do when they identify something they suspect is unethical to take action, to right the wrong, if you will? It will always depend on the situation. Talk to other people, because when we address this alone, 
we don't always think through all the issues. And sometimes we feel like it's just us standing out on the ledge as the one person trying to stop a larger issue. When you talk to other people, first, you might see more perspectives. Maybe there are some complications. Maybe it's not as bad as it seems. Maybe it's worse. See what other people think. You might not be alone. You may have allies. And it's so much easier when 10 people stand up and say, this is what we need to do than one person. Talk to other people, explore the issue, and then together raise it and make people aware. How you do this is going to vary on the nature of the situation. You obviously don't want to just walk in and say, stop, this is wrong. You want to raise the issue and have a fruitful discussion. Approach it like a negotiation. There's a reason this path has been chosen, why people are doing what they're doing. It's not always malicious. They probably are well-intended. No one's trying to actively harm other people. They might just do trade-offs differently than you do. They might not see all the issues. So approach it with a let's solve it together mentality, but here's a problem that we're concerned about. You know, really getting other people. So one, you can kind of check your own thinking and maybe your own biases that you may have, but also to present a more unified front, which I think is important because you do address in the book how sometimes there's incentives to do the wrong thing. Here, it will vary from system to system, but take the example you gave of windows and schools. If the client doesn't want to pay for the window and you are proposing a school with more windows, your bid is going to be higher. This is decreasing the chances that you're successful you could argue, well, look, we might as well just get the bid. And if, the, if anyone else got the bid, there wouldn't be windows anyway. So let's just take the windows out, right? You are incentivized in that bang situation to not have windows. And so the easy solution is just to say, we're going to that worst case scenario. We're going to the bottom. We see this all the time because it's usually easier to stick with the status quo, to not make waves. Even standing up and raising your voice well, it could be you're seen as someone who really raises important issues and as a leader in the company, or you could be seen as a thorn in the side of upper management. You're the problem person. You're raising issues. Is that what you're incentivized to do at work? Is that how you want to be seen? So often it's easier to do nothing, to not raise these issues. What we need to do is reframe them so it's not seen as I am just causing problems, but I am creating issues that create potential opportunities to decrease risk or find new options, new creative solutions. And then you can frame it as, I am not the person just raising problems. I'm the person coming up with new options for us. It's easy to say it's hard to do. And often those incentive systems are just, you're causing more problems, don't make waves. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Or where you feel pressure because you are already actively engaged in the job and the budget gets cut. You can't just walk away on your high standards, you do have to try to say, what can we remove from the project, but still try to prioritize what matters. Really appreciate these viewpoints that you're bringing. They're definitely fresh ones for our industry. So this was a really enlightening discussion for me. If people want to learn more about your work or work with you in a different way, what opportunities do they have? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. There you can learn more about the book, including where to buy, Amazon and local bookstores. You can also, again, touch with me, follow me on social media, download the free app, because when you read a book like this, 
you often forget it. And so the app is designed to provide space repetition reinforcement. Fancy name for saying it's going to pop up once a day, you set the time, and it's going to pop up a reminder of what you've been reading to reinforce these ideas. There's also a whole page of free resources, other books, other websites with resources, as well as some free downloads, how to create a peer learning organization so you can develop these skills across your entire organization. All of this you can find at my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. And you can reach out to me if you want to get me to come into your company to speak or engage me in another way. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. interview totally rocked, but it is way easier to negotiate and stand up for what you believe in when you're working in your true area of strengths and you feel confident about what you're doing. So don't forget to also head over to architectingpodcast.com and download my free resource, The Archetyper, so that you can start being the best version of yourself at work today and be even more effective at those negotiations and hard conversations. Stay inspired. Thank you.